So context matters. So as I'm starting in, this is, you know this passage. This is the Ten Commandments, right? And I, when, I was, when I met Jesus, I was discipled by a Marine. And that Marine put his family farm uh, up as kind of collateral for a lawsuit against the county he lived in to try to sue the county to get the Ten Commandments back on the courthouse walls. Because he believed that if we take them off the courthouse walls, then that would be really destructive to our community. And I, I was a brand new baby in Jesus, and I had my perspective was, what are you talking about? What are you doing? Why are you fighting to try to take over the systems? If, if, we, if the church has so lost our influence that the systems are now downstream representing that transformation. You can't get it back by rushing into those institutions and trying to get the symbols back up on the wall against people's will. That's the totally wrong backward approach. If we get Jesus in the hearts of the people, we'll probably get the Ten Commandments back up on those courthouse walls. But it was so important to my friend because he understands that even though these are Old Testament commands... And we're not even in the Old Testament. These are Old Covenant, uh, like these are core Old Covenant requirements. What God's like, this is my part, this is your part. I'm going to keep my promises, here's what, I, here's what you need to do, right? Even though we're not in that covenant, there's riches in these commands. There's insight, there are psychological gospel insights as to how life actually works in these commands. All right, so context. The context is they've been delivered out of slavery in Egypt. They're now out in the wilderness. And by the, by the way, delivered out of slavery in Egypt with the gods of Egypt in a fist fight, a boxing match that goes 10 rounds with Yahweh. And they didn't get a single punch in. <laughs> like, it, it was a devastating beatdown. They didn't get one punch in. It was, it was a total meltdown. We're talking about the Nile turning blood. We're talking about gnats attacking. We're talking about locusts. We're talking about hailstorms. We're talking about pitch black darkness and the firstborn of every family and every animal falling over dead, highly selectively targeted right to the biggest trauma of your heart, taken down and crushing the morale. Of the, and, then, and then, when the armies chased them through the Red Sea, the gods of Egypt would be like, the Nile is the, the water is the source of everything for them. Water is where everything good comes from Egypt. Water is like, do you know what I'm talking about? The Nile, and just, water is life. And it is through water that Yahweh just decimates their most powerful weapon, which is their, their chariots and their horses the greatest military superpower on planet Earth at that time, and their greatest missile system taken out with the snap of a finger by this Yahweh, delivers them, right? So that's context. Then, they, then they're in the wilderness, and they finally arrive at this mountain, and this is kind of what we read. I'm gonna, this is me getting context in 19. So on the morning of the third day, thunder roared, and lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. 
And there was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. And Moses led them out from the, from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And all of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on the mountain in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God thundered his reply. The Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. Okay, that's context, guys. This is, you hear those birds? I love that. They're going totally nuts. That is context. This is not a God to be trifled with. This is not a God who's sweet, gentle, and approachable. This is, not a, this is the God whom they have seen perform these incredibly devastating acts of power on their behalf. If you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 2, we read that the Israelites cried out to the Lord in their misery because a, because a Pharaoh came to power that didn't know Joseph and what, he, what the Lord had done for them through Joseph. And so as they, you know, multiplied, they became slaves. And they cried out to the Lord. And it says that the Lord heard their cries of distress. And his compassion was aroused. And it says he remembered his promise to Abraham. I love that. I love that so much. But this is his response then. Call, raise up Moses and then demonstrate my superiority to the greatest superpower in the world and their gods. This was not just deliverance from Egypt. This was deliverance from the theological beliefs of Egypt as well. I don't know if I want to go off on this tangent very much, but there's this idea in the earlier parts of the Old Testament that there are many gods. Later, by the time of the book of Isaiah, we have the idea that there's only one God. It's our God. But in the earlier parts of the Old Testament, including Exodus, you have the idea that there are many gods, but they're all little g. And that the Lord is the great God who has sort of apportioned the nations to the little gods. That's called henotheism. That there are many gods and ours is is the best. Yeah, it's different than the theology of the book of Isaiah, isn't it? I alone am God and there is no other. The worker fashions out of a piece of wood, an idol, he overlays it with gold and then he bows down to it and it cannot hear and it cannot see because it doesn't exist, whereas I made everything. That's a much more, I I like that theology better. So here, here, if you're Egyptian or if you're Israelite, you just witness the rumble in the jungle. And, and our guy destroyed your guy, and it wasn't even close. Like you said, didn't even get in a punch. But why did he drag it on 10 rounds? Okay, so we, we've seen this unbelievable display of power, just devastating display of power. It, it, it was a drama, wasn't it? If you go slow through a book like Exodus, oh man, it's just, I haven't found a book in this Bible yet that I didn't think was jam-packed full of incredible stuff. 
Exodus is jam-packed full of incredible stuff. So this is the context in which the Ten Commandments comes to us, by the way. The mountain is shaking. The mountain is on fire. It's like a volcano is happening. The people are terrified, and God's already told them, if you come up here, I will kill you. It's sometimes really easy for us to lose perspective. Little nice, sweet Jesus who, is a, you know, who shows up and makes peace, peaceful feelings happen sometimes when we sing the correct way, and then we go, oh, man, church was good. And I just We lack perspective on the great God of the universe who is not in any way inside of our boxes, and, but who has made himself known by acting in history. And this is how he made himself known. So the whole mountain's shaking. God says, come up here, Moses. So Moses climbs the mountain. Then the Lord told Moses to go back down and warn the people not to break through the boundaries to see the Lord or they will die. Even the priests who regularly come near to the Lord, he says, must purify themselves so that the Lord doesn't break out and destroy them. But Lord, Moses protested, the people can't come up to Mount Sinai. You already warned us. You already said mark the boundary off all around the mountain and set it apart as holy. But the Lord said, go down and bring Aaron back up with you. And in the meantime, don't let the priests or the people break through to approach the Lord or he will break out and destroy them. Again, context. I I don't want us to just jump in and go, look at these 10 rules. I want us to feel where we're at in the story when, when these are given. These are not given in the context of sitting down with the lawyers and just signing papers we didn't read and then moving on with our life. This is not terms and conditions. Yeah, yeah, fine, fine, whatever, whatever. There is a like, what are you talking about intensity to this event? Moses went down to the people and told them what the Lord had said, and then God gave the people these instructions. Verse 2, are you in Exodus 20? Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God except me. Did you hear he doesn't just launch into commands? The first thing he says, I am the Lord, your God, who rescued you out of the land of slavery. I'm the one who delivered you. Therefore, these commands are a response to grace. They're not a way in. They're not a way to get God to love me. They're not a way of, they're not, a, they're not me earning anything. This is the appropriate response to people who have been rescued. That, that's the context. The first thing out of God's mouth. I am the Lord your God who rescued you. And guys, if you can't feel that in your heart already right now, like uh, that, that's right, that's who he is to me. I, I was a slave to sin. I was under a pharaoh. I was captive. I was helpless. And with a mighty hand, with a devastating blow to my enemy, he came and did what I couldn't do and he brought me to himself. And, like, and, now, and now my goal is to figure out how do I live the way he's called me to live? How do I do this thing, God? Show me how. I don't know how. Show me. Teach me. So, I am the Lord your God. But by the way, this, the guy who did the chapels at my seminary, he said this would be God's email signature. You know how at the bottom of all your emails, you have a standard response. You can set up one. 
He's like, this is what God puts as his email signature. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You'll hear it over and over when he's through Leviticus especially, or Numbers. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. I am the Lord your God. I rescued you out of Egypt, that smelting pot. He keeps saying, I'm your God. I did this for you. This is why. Okay, first one, first command. And I doubt we'll get through all 10 tonight, or at least we won't exhaust them. But I'm the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Therefore, you must not have any other God but me. No other gods but God. Now, I already said the theology of this book is kind of henotheistic, right? There's all these other little g gods, you know. It's not that they don't exist, but that our God's the creator God, and he's greater. But this right here isn't even just talking about monotheism, is it? Interesting. Well, I think the New Testament would show like they're actually fallen angels, right? Like they're not supposed to be worshipped as God? They had an original calling to serve the, the yeah. Okay, so Carl, you're hitting to a deep insight into this command, right? And this, is, this was the point I was probably headed to is this command, have no other gods but me. Martin Luther says, if we'll keep this one, we won't even need the rest because we won't break the rest. He says, this command goes so deep. That if we keep it, if we, if we really have God as our, as our all, if we're looking to him at, to satisfy and provide, if we're looking to him to be for us all that, w- that we need and depend on him, we won't even, that'll actually cut the root of the temptation to break all these other commands. Because on our way to break these other commands, on our way to breaking them, we already have overstepped the idea that we lack something. So we got to go get it where, where it doesn't belong to us. That's why we bear false witness. That's why we covet our neighbor's, neighbor's wife. That's why we dishonor our parents. That's why we're tempted to steal. It's why we lie. So monotheism is the what? Belief that there's only one God. Now, James has a fascinating point on monotheism. And he says that the demons are monotheistic, according to James. He says the demons believe there's only one God. Does it benefit them? No. So the demons believe, in theory, that this verse is a reasonable, true, true statement. There's, you know, there's only one God. But this verse isn't about what you believe is theoretically true about the world. This verse is about monotheism of the heart. Not monotheism of the theology. I only have one God is what this is after. Yeah. Um, you could take Second commandment. Because okay. so, that's where it gets really fascinating to me. So the first one, first commandment. I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm all you need and I'm here for you. The, today what I was doing was going, okay, Jesus, I'm in the new covenant. It's not my job to to earn affection by keeping these things, but there's insight in here. And what is it? Show me what it is. And he was like, you know, like the the thing that came to me was flip it. Instead of viewing it as the negative, don't do this. Understand that this is pregnant with promise. 
What this is saying is you absolutely don't need any other God but me. That's how I'm for you. I'm so for you. I'm so sufficient. I'm so more than enough for you that you don't need anyone else but me. I will love you. I've created you. I'll sustain you. I'll provide for you. I made you the way that I wanted you. And every desire you have is intentionally orchestrated. And if you'll trust me and walk with me, I'll provide everything you need to be the creature you were made to be. And you don't need anyone else. I'll take such good care of you. So we could view it as the negative. I better make sure I don't keep any other gods. And that's true. And that's faithful. But what, if, what about us who are in Jesus? Right? This covenant we have with Jesus, big upgrade. This is now not just, this is no longer just a command. It's not just what God demands from me. It's, it's a promise for what he'll fulfill in me and who he'll be for me. Are you with me? Okay, and then the second command, it almost seems like, why would you need the second command after the first one? Because the second command is, you, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. Well, didn't we just say that? Not quite. They're not quite the same command. They're very related. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind, or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea, and you must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I love that. Today, I I was thinking about that. I, I had to leave my office and go talk to my wife. I said, Carrie... New Testament says that, James again, says that the spirit God put in me jealously desires to have my affection. Now, I didn't know I was such a big deal that God would be jealous over me. I certainly don't feel worthy of that. I I have affection for my woman to the point that the other day, she came home and she said, as I was delivering DoorDash, this young, this kind of teenage kid walks up to me and just shakes his head and says, you are mad gorgeous. And I was like, what's his name? Where does he live? Where was that happen? Where'd that... <laughs> so I started telling her she's mad gorgeous. I started telling, I started telling her she was mad gorgeous because she said, no one's ever called me mad gorgeous before. Listen, guys, I tell her every day how attractive she is, how beautiful she is, how elegant she is, her femininity, her her dignified, elegant, sensuous, pleasing, everything about her. I, every day, and I ask her, did I, have I sufficiently affirmed your beauty yet today? And if not, I do. So then this kid throws out mad gorgeous and it gets into her, well, I mean, Tim says it all the time, but what does he know? And, and, and this jealousy comes up in me because of how I feel about her and because of the thing that I, that I want to stay between only us, right? Mm-hmm. Now, think about this. God says, if you bow down to stuff that's on the planet that I made as a gift for you and you veer your affection away from me to the stuff I made instead of letting the stuff I made veer your affection to even greater connection to me, Right? Gratitude to the Lord for a blessing is not the same as thinking the blessing is the source of my joy. Right? God says, I'm going to be jealous 
if you do that. And I go, I didn't know I was a prize. Again, if we're trying to new covenant flip these commands, do you hear that you're a prize? I hadn't seen that before today. I remember Oprah Winfrey said that the God of the Bible can't be good if he's jealous because that's a, that's a sinful, weak attitude, not a, not a virtue. How could he be jealous? And I'm like, I think you're talking about envy, girl. Envy is when you wrongly, wrongly wish you could have something that isn't yours. But jealousy is when you rightly desire to keep for yourself what does rightfully belong to you. And it's not a vice, it's a virtue. But I'm just saying today, this felt like love to me, that God would actually be jealous for my affection and my attention. Is that, am I communicating that at all, helpfully? Like, because I, I can't make it land on you the way it landed on me, but I didn't feel like I was a treasure. And then I read that today and I said, he thinks I'm a treasure. So that's the second one is, okay, I didn't even really unpack that. You guys already implied this, that we can turn anything into a God. But, but see, what's been kind of blowing my mind lately is the idea that the God of Israel, the, the, our God, that's our God. He says, uh, don't make any idols and bow down to, to the, any of the other gods, but also don't make any idols to me. Don't, don't make any little crafted things that are supposed to be me and bow down and worship them. I didn't know we were bowing down to the cross. I call it an aid to prayer, like magic. If I have the right saints amulet on, it makes me lucky, quote unquote. But, okay, but my issue is this. The God of the Bible is so... The God of the Bible is, is so concerned that we not shrink him down to what fits in our head and then shrink him down to a place and a symbolic little piece of furniture. And this is where God lives. And then we get him in our little system that if we'll fast and pray and kneel the right way and say the right words or do the right hocus pocus or kill enough virgins or whatever it is, then we can control him because we've got him figured out. And he's like, you will never figure me out. Like the universe is like so, I, I, I think it's really important that we regularly allow the creation to blow our mind so that we remember the God who we're dealing with is far beyond the creation and the create, like the, the magnitude of the universe. We thought, it, we thought we were like really big stuff for a couple thousand years. We really did. And then we realized that we revolve around our sun and then we realized our sun was just a tiny star and then we realized our star was just a speck in a little solar system in a big galaxy, in a, in a big galaxy, really big galaxy. And then we realized it's just a small galaxy in the corner of a huge universe that has millions of galaxies. And, and, and so the size of the greatness of the size of space is just a metaphor to say, I can't conceive of the size of this. I can't conceive of the size of our sun, to be honest. And God dwarfs all that, right? So he's not limited. And that's just space, for example. Like if you took power, for an example, I can't hardly conceive. Like I have just a hard time grasping power. And those are, again, metaphors for his power or understanding, knowledge, insight, Guys, let's say we pull off this artificial intelligence thing and it's smarter than all of us on day five. 
Like on day one, it's, a little, it's almost as smart as us, but by day five, it's, it's like smarter than all of us together. It's still nothing to God, nothing. This second command of don't worship any other idols has so many implications. Like Don said and like Carl said, we can turn anything into a God, anything into a God, right? And that's why there were so many pagan gods. The reason there were so many pagan gods is because a story about the gods grows up around the god of wealth. Another story about the gods grows up around the pursuit of sexual beauty, of eros, Aphrodite, romance. Another, another whole cult grows up around the chaos of the ocean, right? And Poseidon and all. Like, the reason there were so many gods was because humans have a psychological tendency to turn everything into a god. Now, and then you go to the modern world and we go, not us. We don't have gods. Bro, we have as many, if not more gods, but we lack, but what we lack right now is the official, uh, what's the word? The official cult, turning them into cults. Interesting. But praying to those gods. I, I, I uploaded a, a YouTube video on good pagans and bad Christians, right? One of the challenges to the faith is if it's really true, then why, why are there good pagans and bad Christians? It seems like if the gospel was true, we would be demonstrably better people than non-Christians. And so that, that's essentially what the video was about. And I thought it was fascinating. Some of the commenters were pagans who, who sort of were rolling their eyes at the, at the, at the implication you know, the implication that they should be worse people than us. And, uh, and I really was saying you're actually not. But, okay. No other gods but me is number one. And don't make idols is number two. And don't do it, and, and, and not just because I, I said don't, but rather look at the justification. He says, I'm jealous and I won't tolerate it. I won't tolerate it. I lay the sins of the parents on the children, and the entire family is affected, even children in the third or fourth generation of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. There's so much built into that. He's interactive and responsive. The cross doesn't, like, take God and say, and snip and give him a lobotomy so that he's only allowed to be stupid and happy and medicated and sedated from now on. Some people's theology is that, by the way, that the cross sort of just lobotomizes God, so now he's just sort of like, hey, and no matter what you do, he's, oh, great. That's, that's not accurate. Uh, like we saw last time in, in the book of Acts. Okay, but I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me. Third one, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Again, the Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. I find this one a really interesting, a really interesting one. How do we reverence and treasure God's name? And it's really, it's funny. Jesus built the prayer for this command into, the, into his, when the disciples said, teach us how to pray. It's one of the prayers. 
Our Father in heaven, let your name be regarded as holy. It's, like, it's actually a core value. How you talk about someone's name is a big deal. I remember we named one, we named our one cat Kevin. And I, and I was saying as a joke that we named him Kevin just so we could yell, dang it, Kevin, because of a Pringles commercial, I think it was, or a Doritos commercial, some Super Bowl commercial. And uh, my friend Kevin is over here having a conversation, and he turns and he yells, who is taking my name in vain? <laughs> Sorry, buddy. We were talking about my cat. Yeah, why'd you name your stupid cat? My, my name. So I, like, I find it interesting. I, I don't know if, if it causes you physical discomfort when you're watching a show. I don't like the F word, but this hurts more. Yeah, or JC, or just J. And so my kids always know what's happening on the show I'm watching, because if, if, if they take the Lord's name in vain, I fix it every time out loud. If they say GD, I go, God is great. And if they say JC, I said, is, is Lord, or I'll say Jesus is Lord. Because I can't let it go unchallenged. Like, I won't let it go unchallenged. And then if it just goes on too much, it's like, well, this show doesn't need to exist in my life. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying every time that I immediately shut it off, but I fix it every time because it's releasing something into the atmosphere and I'm not going to go along with that crap. This is a big deal. This is my Jesus we're talking about. This is my God. And I I wonder if we've lost that. Like the, the, yeah, like neighbor kids come into my house and they're like, oh my God. And I go, we don't, don't say that here. Don't say that here. Please don't. Don't talk like that around me. Don't do that. And then you're like, like shocked and appalled. Like, what? You know, and I probably should do a better job explaining everything instead of just being like, please don't do that here. Yeah. But there's something really core to the idea of like, how are we talking about this God? Are we talking about God casually? I, I, I think it's really interesting. Is it just the word God? I, I sometimes go, I like the Jewish uh, intuition to say, don't say God's name. I, and here's what I like about it. The idea is God is so incredibly holy. He's so incredibly important. And he's so incredibly other than us. He's so incredibly beyond us. And that, that, that to just casually, casually just say his, his, the symbol, the, the linguistic symbol we have for the box of category of beliefs and thoughts of who he is as a person, to just casually say it is dangerous because it's possible we would say it without the proper heart attitude. And then the more we just, well, God, death, and God, death, and then God, death. And I I think where it bothers me almost the most is stuffy, dry certainties of the experts on the Bible where all, all day we're just cutting up with precision like a like an engineering manual, our, our beliefs. Well, no, that's wrong because of the following nine verses that I understand this way and everything, which is where I bring in my, my, one of my heroes of the faith, Madeline Langle. You know her, Wrinkle in Time, fiction writer? No? Okay. Madeline's the one who said that until she was like 12 or 13, when she went down the stairs at her grandma's, she didn't touch the stairs. But then after she went through puberty and her brain got a little older... She forgot how. 
And if you just heard what I said and said, huh? What are you saying? She flew down the stairs and she would say, yeah, I floated from the top of the stairs to the bottom without touching. Every time, because I didn't know I couldn't, just like Peter walking on water, because he was so locked into Jesus, he didn't know he couldn't, so he did. But then once he looked down at the wind and the waves, he forgot that he... Anyway, that's Madeline. She wrote some fiction stuff that is really incredible and has helped a lot of people come to faith. But she said that the theologians, the theologians, when she was coming to faith, it was the theologians that almost drove her away. Because the theologians treat this book like it's a source book of uh, engineering code. Like we're going to build a bridge and this says that if it's going to have this rise, it's going to have to have that run and then we're going to have to have this level of weight steel and we're going to have to make sure it's this thick because it's going to have that much rust on it. And they're treating this as certainties and the goal is to just stick within code. And she said, so the theologians, with all their certainty, constantly talking about God, but they don't smell like, they don't smell like smoke, like they just came out of the presence of the Lord off the mountain that was shaking. They, that doesn't, they don't smell like they just came out where Moses was. They smell like they came out of a library, and they couldn't be more boring and irritating and irrelevant. Then she read atheist scientists, atheist scientists, who because they believed that the truth was out there to be discovered, have devoted themselves to, the, to a life of learning, to a life of, of understanding, because life itself is so captivating and compelling, because the universe is such a beautiful, huge, complex, and incredibly surprising place that doesn't work how you would think. It works how it works, and it's up to us to track it down and figure out how it's working. And they've given their lives to debunking assumptions with, the, with this sense that we're little and the universe is big and life's a mystery and a miracle, and let's figure it out. And she said, they led me to faith. Now, not because they had faith. They didn't have faith. What they had was awe. What they had was reverence. What they had was curiosity. And she said that. Though they, they, she basically said they left, they must have left faith behind because they had too much faith for church people to handle. I'm, I'm putting words in her mouth, but I think she's right. I get more Jesus insights out of David Attenborough and I, than, I, than I do out of certain people who I won't name. I, I would say it this way. If you're looking for God in science, that's not, that's not going to happen because he's not in the, under the microscope. or in, right. But, but what Madeline was saying was there was too much almost taking God's name as cheap. We're, just, we're so sure. We're just, we're just, we got it right here. We got it all figured out. It's right all, it's all right here. Just God, 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 God all day long. And, and, and so what I'm trying to say is it's not just saying, saying it in a cussing way. It's, say, it's, it's, it's over-familiarity and, and dumbing down until he's in our boxes so thoroughly that we don't even tremble anymore and the awe is missing and the spark is gone. 
And I'm not saying those scientists are, are they're the great examples of faith, but they are the great examples of, of something that has to be in our faith. And that is this sense of like wonder and awe. Yeah, okay, so the way we do it in English is we use the word God as like this, this symbolic category, you know, and, and, and you're right. In Hebrew, they didn't call God by the generic word, like the Greek word for God, Latin word for God. In Hebrew, it was either Elohim or Adonai or, or the various names that you would call God. So it was definitely more personal in Hebrew than, than it is in English when we have the generic word God. You're right about that. But I still, I still say, I, I, there's something about that intuition, that Hebrew intuition that says, we're not even going to say his name, we're just going to put a symbol here for it, that I like, that I like. And, and I'm saying this as someone who believes, like Carl I, Carl, I know you love this, that we boldly have access, you know, Ephesians and Hebrews and so many other passages we just, we brushed right into, into my father's room and we sob on his chest and we get what we need because we're the children and he's qualified us to do it and he wants us to. Right. You know, he wants to hear what we have to say. He cares about what we're going through. We're not being presumptuous. But at the same time I'm saying that, I go, I love the, the intuition that says, let's not, let's not, take God's name and just say it so casually and so certain and just God, 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 God. For some reason, that's fresh for me. The idea of not, having, not making idols, but not, but not only not making idols of other things, but not making idols unto the Lord. And God being like, I am so not in your boxes. You, you, you so have me, but you so do not have me figured out. Like, there's a big difference between you so have me. I'm really acting in your life. I'm really here for you. I'm really available. And, oh, by the way, your thoughts of me? Not even close. So, okay, three, we, we only covered three tonight and we didn't really cover them we just talked about them do you know what i mean we didn't exhaust these have no other gods don't make idols really really reverence my name and and on all three we have kind of consequences built in like god's emotionally responsive to to this but it's all founded on i am the lord your god and i rescued you out of your slavery i delivered you I am so for you, and look what I've done for you. Now, here's what I need from you. Here's who I am for you, but here's what I want from you. Can you protect this relationship on your end the way that I'm protecting it on my end? That's what covenant's about, right? And, and then most of us would say, I really haven't done a great job. There's more of them. The very, the very next one is really interesting, too. You, you just... Surprising what he puts first and what he puts second. All the stuff with how we treat people comes the second half. And, and I believe that the church, and I see, I don't know if this is true or not. The Lord knows if this is true. But my intuition says that a lot of us think that it's almost, oh man, okay. There was a street preacher I was watching last night. I think I'll end with this. 
There's a street preacher I was walking, watching last night on YouTube. And I'm typically not a huge fan of street preachers if what they're doing is just sort of yelling at people and they're not even like having a conversation. But this guy, he would put the mic in people's faces and let them talk and, and let them really critique what he was saying and react and, and, and debate with him. And one guy was like, you just love the sound of your own voice. And he's like, I love the sound of your voice too, which is why you have a mic in your face right now. And they were just, they were, they were mean to him. And he, and he was so solid. He was so, so incredibly solid. And, and in the course of the debates, uh, th- their capacity to get offended by him, it, it was escalating in, in, in the video. And like I said, I typically don't like uh, a preaching style where you camp out in public on someone's event, interrupt their event, yell into a microphone, tell them all they really suck and that they really need to change, and then go home having not made the gospel clear to anyone, not really, but feeling good about yourself for, for being brave enough to withstand a lot of verbal abuse. This guy was different. This guy was different. This guy was brave and bold, and he was being verbally abused and cussed at big time. But he was just like, why are you here? Why are you even here? Because I love you, bro. Because I love you, bro. Because you matter to God. God loves all of us. He, he does love all of us. That's why I'm here. He does. Like, well, he made me gay. No, bro. No, 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 he didn't. No, he didn't. Society and influences and other things happened. Then you chose that. And he's like, well, you're saying that I'm broken. You're saying that I'm blah, blah, blah. He goes, the Bible says God loves me. It does say that. Jesus also said, repent. Repent and believe the good news. And he was just so patient with people. He didn't get provoked. Yeah. Okay. I, I forget the, even the point I was going to make with that. Now I lost it completely. I remembered the point I was going to try to make. The first commands in the Ten Commandments are exclusively about how we treat God. And then the second five of the commands are how we treat people. Both matter, but God comes first. God is our higher priority than people. And the street preacher was out here saying, I love God more than I love myself, more than I love my daughter, more than I love my wife, more than I love my parents. And a lady standing nearby, her face and her whole body reacted, and she said, she just involuntarily blurted out, what? You love God more than your own daughter? What is wrong with you? That violated her values. See, and I, and I suspect that her values are pretty common. We don't intuitively get it. Our hearts are that upside down, so that, up, that human-centered, that idolatrous. It's not just me first, it's us first. We're here to train people how to love God first and love God most and love God more and then love people in his name. We're not here to keep our idols intact and let God serve those idols. But I was just like, this guy. So I just commented, bro, like mad respect. He cared about people enough to put himself in harm's way. To be a faithful servant of Christ Jesus in this generation does not mean that we are going to be sensitive to everyone's feelings and never offend someone. It means that we're going to love people well enough to give them the information they need to navigate reality. 
Everybody is so close to eternity. And when we get there, all that's going to matter is did we navigate reality so that we are prepared for this encounter with Jesus? Not what our culture thinks is love. What our culture thinks is love is if you don't make me feel loved, then you are mean and evil. And I'm just like, that's why they persecuted all the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New and killed Jesus. Because that hasn't changed. And so faithfulness for us means genuinely loving, but not necessarily having people receive that as love all the time. Okay. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we didn't even remotely get through the list of these insightful instructions that reveal just how penetrating your analysis is of the human tendency and what covenant's about. We didn't even get through half the list, Lord. But I'm asking, God, that you would, you would grip us afresh. Grip us afresh, God, that we would remember the God that we have to do with, that you are not in our little boxes, I ask God for the passion I see in like Neil deGrasse Tyson, that he wants to learn something every single day of his life, and he wants to understand how the world works. I pray for that hunger to come into us, God, that we would not go, yeah, 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 I know the Bible, I know this thing, I know, I know, I know, I got it inside and out. I pray for a boredom to break off of us in Jesus' name, and for us to have the eyes of new, of new the, the eyes of a, of, a, of a learner, the eyes of a beginner, the eyes of someone who just got into this and is discovering it all for the first time. Because all of us, when it comes to you, are not even close. We, there's not an expert on the planet about you. I pray, God, for a reverence for the, for, the, for the creatures of this planet. I pray for a reverence for science. I pray for a reverence for what you've made. I pray for our minds to be freshly blown by simple things like soil and bugs and animals and our own bodies, like planets and stars. I pray, God, for deep spiritual and psychological insight, for Rusty and Linda especially to have relational insight. Give them relational insight, God, not just for themselves, not just for their family, but deep relational insight that, that, that as they would give it away to other people, those people would go, Okay, that felt like God was breathing on that conversation. That wasn't just an encouraging conversation. That was God breathing on it. God, I pray for everyone in this room that the kind of encounters that Moses was able to have with you, I know it is our new covenant birthright that every one of us, man, Jesus, you said it, that the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. The least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. You said, Jesus, that it was better for you to go away so that each of us could have the same spirit that guided you in dwelling us. You said it's better. Surely you, Jesus, were guided and led by the spirit of your father moment by moment. You were never away from him. You were never apart from your father, and neither are we. So I'm asking God for you to give us encounters that you would, you would pour wisdom into our hearts, that you would pour insight into our hearts, that you would cause our faces to shine. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, teach us what it means to have no other God but you and to see that what you're offering us in that command is a glorious promise beyond anything we can fully even take in. 
Show us where there are idols in our life that we're bowing down to and giving reverence and causing Holy Spirit to say, hey, that part of you belongs to me. I want to relate to you in that way. Hey, come home to me. And teach us the simple things like how to be so careful to treat you with dignity and respect in how we talk about you and how we represent you. Because we carry your name. We don't just say your name in prayers. We're marked by your name. We've taken on your last name, so to speak. Give us more, God. Give us more, God. Give us more, God. Give us more. Give us more. Teach us how. Teach us how to vacuum with you. Teach us how to wash dishes with you. Teach us how to wipe butts with you. Teach us how to drive nails with you. Teach us how to do electrical work with you. Teach us how to take care of people's physical health with you. Teach us how to do all the stuff we do as worship and to know we're never apart from you and everything is filled with you. In Jesus' name, amen.